Welcome to the October 19th, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. On today's podcast, the diversity of gut microbiota predicts mortality and acute graft-versus-host disease in pediatric allogeneic transplant recipients. This confirms what has previously been shown in adults, but with one notable difference regarding the dynamics of gut microbiota over time. After that, complement inhibition in patients with complement-mediated atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome. In the largest single-center cohort reported to date for this rare disorder, treatment with eculizumab improved survival-free end-stage kidney disease with a low rate of relapse. Finally, PD-1 plus HDAC equals responses in previously treated Hodgkin lymphoma. Pembrolizumab plus varinostat was active in a heavily pretreated cohort. Response rates were encouraging in this heavily pretreated cohort, even among patients with PD-1 refractory disease. Let's go to our first research article, Gut Microbiota Diversity Before Allogeneic Hematopoietic Stem Cell Transplantation as a Predictor of Mortality in Children. The first author is Riccardo Massetti of the University of Bologna in Italy. First, some background. Clearly, the benefits of allogeneic transplant are limited by treatment-related mortality due to infections and acute GVHD, or graft-versus-host disease. And allogeneic transplantation severely injures the gut microbiota due to factors such as conditioning regimens, antibiotic exposure, and dietary changes. Gut microbiota may influence transplant outcomes, as shown in previous studies, mainly in adults. One key measure is the diversity of gut microbiota. High fecal diversity is linked to better outcomes, and vice versa. A few time points have frequently been evaluated in studies, before transplant, and then after transplant, more specifically at the time of neutrophil engraftment. In one adult cohort, high fecal diversity prior to allotransplant correlated with improved overall survival and reduced treatment-related mortality. However, it's after transplant where fecal diversity has been most consistently linked to outcomes in adults. In two independent cohorts, lower diversity of gut microbiota at the time of neutrophil engraftment predicted poor overall survival and higher risks of treatment-related mortality due to acute graft-versus-host disease. There are fewer studies on the relationship between gut microbiota diversity and outcomes in pediatric allogeneic transplant recipients. And until now, no published data on the link between gut microbiota diversity and mortality. In blood, Massetti and co-authors report on the link between gut microbiota diversity and clinical outcomes in pediatric patients who underwent allogeneic HSCT. They included 90 pediatric patients from five centers. They evaluated stool samples obtained prior to transplantation and at neutrophil engraftment. In total, 180 stool samples were sequenced to profile the gut microbiota and to get estimates of microbial diversity. Patients were stratified into high and low diversity groups based on the Shannon Index, which measures the richness of a microbial community. Now, the results. Overall survival was longer for patients who had high fecal microbial diversity in the pre-transplant sample. By contrast, there was no correlation between overall survival and microbial diversity post-transplant at the time of neutrophil engraftment. In the pre-transplant sample, 
Estimated overall survival at 52 months was 88.9%, compared to 62.7% for the patients with lower pretransplant fecal microbial diversity. The p-value was 0.011. There was no difference in relapse-free survival between the groups. Similar findings were reported for acute GVHD. The incidence of grade 2 to 4 acute GVHD was 20% for the group with high pretransplant microbial diversity and about 44% for patients with low pretransplant diversity. Grade 3 to 4 acute GVHD incidence was 2.2% in the high diversity group and 20% in the low diversity group. And again, there was no correlation between acute GVHD and microbial diversity at the post-transplant time point. The higher diversity group had more bacteria in families associated with health, including Ruminococcaceae and Ocellospiraceae. The lower diversity group had more Enterococcaceae and Enterobacteriaceae, both of which have been associated with bacteremia and viremia in previous studies of pediatric allogeneic stem cell transplantation. Keystone species in the higher diversity group included short-chain fatty acid producers known to be components of a healthy child gut microbiota, such as Blautia, Bacteroides, and Roseburia. By contrast, keystone species in the lower diversity group included Enterococcus, Enterobacter, and Escherichia shigella. These results show that microbes matter in pediatric allo-HCT. That's the title of a commentary by Melody Smith of Stanford University of Medicine and Kate A. Markey of the University of Washington in Seattle. Smith and Markey say these results represent an important contribution to the existing allo-HCT literature, where pediatric data has been lacking. They also say these data highlight a key difference between pediatric and adult studies. In adults, the perineutrophil engraftment biome has been most consistently linked to post-transplant outcomes. But in this pediatric study, it's high diversity prior to allo-HCT that's linked to higher overall survival and less GVHD. This difference could be explained by the dynamics of the intestinal microbiome over the lifespan. Recent studies suggest that the child intestinal microbiome continues to evolve over time, not becoming like the adult microbiome until much later in life. Another factor is sample size of the present study. 90 patients is relatively few compared to some previous adult cohorts. And pediatric and adult populations differ not only in indications for allo-HCT, but also in allo-HCT approaches. So future studies may be needed to help explain the impact of specific microbial contributors to transplant outcomes across the stages of life. There are potential clinical implications as well. In preclinical models and active clinical trials, investigators are looking at interventions that may mitigate or repair microbial injury due to transplantation. And the current study suggests that not only adults, but also children undergoing allogeneic transplant may benefit from such interventions. The next article is titled, Atypical Hemolytic Uremic Syndrome in the Era of Terminal Complement Inhibition, an Observational Cohort Study. The first author is Vicki Brocklebank of the National Renal Complement Therapeutic Center, NRCTC, in the UK. This study is the largest reported single-center real-world cohort of eculizumab treatment in patients with complement-mediated atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome. This rare kidney disease is characterized by complement activation on the surface of endothelial cells, which leads to thrombotic microangiopathy, or TMA. 
Patients typically present with thrombocytopenia, microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, and acute kidney injury. In about half of cases, an inherited or acquired complement abnormality is identified. Inherited cases are associated with underlying genetic mutations in complement activators or regulators, while acquired cases are related to factor H autoantibodies. Outcomes of patients with complement-mediated atypical HUS were historically poor. Management was generally limited to supportive care, with or without plasma exchange. However, small single-arm studies have suggested the efficacy of eculizumab, a monoclonal antibody targeted to complement protein C5. In the United Kingdom, all patients with suspected complement-mediated atypical HUS are referred to a specialized center, the aforementioned NRCTC which includes a genotyped registry. That allows for the current observational cohort study. It includes 243 individuals with suspected complement-mediated atypical HUS who received eculizumab for native kidney disease. Of those patients, 192 did have complement-mediated atypical HUS, while 51 subsequently had an alternate diagnosis. Of the 192 patients with a complement-mediated atypical HUS diagnosis, 90, or 47%, were identified to have an inherited complement abnormality, an acquired abnormality, or both. The control group for this study included 279 individuals who had a genetic mutation implicated in complement-mediated atypical HUS, or who were positive for factor H autoantibodies, but did not receive eculizumab. The primary outcome of this study focused on end-stage kidney disease, or ESKD. The five-year ESKD-free survival was 85.5% for the eculizumab-treated group and 39.5% in the control group. The hazard ratio was 4.95, with a 95% confidence interval that did not include 1, and a significant p-value. The number needed to treat was 2.17. In the treatment group, outcomes were associated with the underlying genotype. Five-year ESKD-free survival ranged from a low of 78% for individuals with an underlying CFH mutation to a high of 95.6% for those with a CD46 mutation. In multivariate analysis, factors associated with eculizumab response included lower serum creatinine, lower platelet count, and younger age at presentation. Further multivariate analysis revealed several factors associated with an estimated glomerular filtration rate, or EGFR, of 60 milliliters per minute or higher at six months. These included lower serum creatinine, lower platelet count, lower blood pressure, and younger age at presentation. A shorter time between presentation and first eculizumab dose was also linked to EGFR over 60 at six months. Eculizumab side effects included meningococcal infection, which occurred in three individuals during the study period. The incidence of meningococcal infection was 550 per 100,000 person years. Of note, the background incidence in the general population is 1 per 100,000 person years. When eculizumab was withdrawn, the relapse rates were low. The relapse rate was 1 per 9.5 person years in those individuals with pathogenic mutations linked to the disease, and 1 per 10.8 person years in those with a variant of uncertain significance. And in patients with no rare genetic variants, there were no relapses documented in 67.3 person years of treatment. Eculizumab was restarted in six cases, and none of the individuals progressed to ESKD. While the limitations inherent in the study design should be acknowledged, 
These data nevertheless support the efficacy of eculizumab and complement mediated atypical HUS. That's the opinion of Nicole C.A.J. Vanderkar and Jack F.M. Wetzels of Radboud University Medical Center. They authored a commentary on the study titled, Narrowing the Knowledge Gap in Atypical HUS. In their commentary, Vanderkar and Wetzels say that the low relapse rate in this study supports the conclusion of other studies and clearly argues against the need for lifelong use of what amounts to a very expensive treatment. However, they say the study raises some outstanding issues regarding difficulties in diagnosing the condition, suboptimal outcomes, and relapse rates, among other issues. Even in this specialized center of expertise, the diagnostic accuracy was limited. Biomarkers are needed to ensure patients are diagnosed promptly and accurately so they can receive appropriate therapy. And even in the eculizumab era, outcomes are not optimal. Many patients in the study had persistent chronic kidney disease, and about one in five needed renal replacement therapy. So altogether, this research article provides a wealth of data on the treatment of this condition with eculizumab. However, the commentary authors conclude further work is needed to improve the management of patients with TMA and suspected complement-mediated atypical HUS. Our final article is Pembrolizumab plus Vorinostat induces responses in patients with Hodgkin lymphoma refractory to prior PD-1 blockade. The first author is Matthew Mai of the City of Hope National Medical Center in Duarte, California. For patients with relapsed or refractory classical Hodgkin lymphoma, or CHL, Salvage therapy followed by autologous hematopoietic cell transplant is potentially curative. However, the benefits are limited by transplant ineligibility and disease relapse following transplant. The treatment paradigm has changed with the introduction of targeted immunotherapies, including the PD-1 inhibitors pembrolizumab and nivolumab. CHL appears to be highly sensitive to PD-1 inhibition partly due to high expression of the PD-L1 ligand on malignant HRS cells, Hodgkin-Reed-Sternberg cells. In Phase two trials of single-agent pembrolizumab or nivolumab, patients with relapsed or refractory CHL had high rates of response, which were often durable. However, not all patients respond. The complete response rate is low, and most lose their response at some point. The current article focuses on combined inhibition of PD-1 and HDAC, histone deacetylase. The HDAC inhibitor panobinostat yielded a modest 27% overall response rate and 4% complete response rate in a large phase 2 study in patients with relapsed refractory disease. However, HDAC inhibitors may have immunostimulatory effect, such that they could improve or restore sensitivity to PD-1 inhibition in patients with CHL. The present phase 1 study evaluates pembrolizumab plus vorinostat in patients with relapsed or refractory lymphomas. The current report focuses on patients with CHL. 32 patients were enrolled. 30 received oral vorinostat at the recommended phase 2 dose of 200 mg twice daily on days 1 to 5 and 8 to 12 of each 21-day cycle. Pembrolizumab was given intravenously at 200 mg on day 1. 69% of patients were male, the median age was 35 years, 72% were Caucasian, and 28% had Hispanic ethnicity. 
Three quarters had stage three to four disease. Patients had a median of three and up to 10 prior therapies. All but two patients previously received rentuximab vidotin. And 25 patients, or 78%, previously received PD-1 inhibition, including 18, or 56%, who were PD-1 refractory. Responses were reported in 23 of 32 patients, or 72%, including 11, or 34%, with complete responses. In 14 patients who were anti-PD-1 treatment naive or sensitive to previous PD-1 inhibitor therapy, responses were seen in 13, or 93%, with 9 complete responses, or 64%. In patients refractory to prior PD-1 inhibitor therapy, 10 of 18, or 56%, had a response two of which, or 11%, were complete responses. Median duration of response was 12.2 months for PD-1 inhibitor naive or responsive patients and nearly 9 months for PD-1 inhibitor refractory patients. In patients with complete response, investigators noted an increase in the combined density of PD-L1 positive HRS cells and PD-L1 positive CD163 expressing tumor-associated macrophages in the tumor microenvironment. In the three patients with paired pretreatment and post-progression biopsies, PD-L1 expression in HRS cells was higher at the time of progression. In RNA sequencing of Hodgkin lymphoma cell lines, investigators showed that varinostat increased expression of genes important in cytotoxic T-cell trafficking, T-cell co-stimulation, and antigen presentation in HRS cells. Varinostat also decreased expression of chemokines important for recruitment of immune-suppressive regulatory T-cells. The most common adverse events of any grade included hypertension, fatigue, nausea, hyponatremia, diarrhea, abdominal pain, thrombocytopenia, anemia, and leukopenia. The most frequent grade 3 or greater adverse events included hypophosphatemia, hypertension, and neutropenia, each reported in 9% of patients, as well as thrombocytopenia and lymphopenia each reported in 6% of patients. Immune-mediated adverse events included grade 1 to 2 thyroiditis in 4 patients, grade 1 rash in 2 patients, and grade 3 esophagitis and duodenitis in 1 patient. Graham P. Collins of Churchill Hospital in Oxford, UK, provided a commentary on this study in blood. Collins says this study demonstrates impressive response rates for the combination of arinostat and pembrolizumab, including in patients who were refractory to prior PD-1 inhibitor therapy. He adds that the demonstrated upregulation of genes involved in cytotoxic T-cell recruitment, T-cell co-stimulation, and antigen presentation in cell lines lends support to a model whereby HDAC inhibitors may sensitize or resensitize some patients to PD-1 inhibition. Furthermore, this study provides proof of principle that PD-1 inhibitor activity may be enhanced through the addition of a targeted non-chemotherapeutic agent, thus avoiding cytotoxic chemotherapy. Although cytotoxic chemotherapy plus PD-1 inhibition can produce high response rates, Several clinical trials are evaluating chemotherapy-free approaches. One strategy is to target multiple immune checkpoints, such as a PD-1 plus LAG-3 or PD-1 plus TIM-3. Hodgkin lymphoma was one of the first cancers to be frequently cured by radiotherapy and then by combination chemotherapy, Collins concludes, adding that it will be fascinating to see if immunotherapy combinations hold similar potential. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.